A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi there, this is a message for history friends and for patrons alike, so don't panic. You should know that we're having a Q&A episode in time to celebrate our 7th birthday on the 18th of May. And if you would like to contribute questions to that episode, then you have until the 11th of May to do so. So get cracking. Ask me any questions you would like me to answer, and I will answer them. If you'd like to send an audio recording, I'd be happy to put that into the show as well. If you're curious about where we're going next with the show, if you're curious about things in my life, if you're curious about things that I plan on doing with the show in the future, you get the idea. Ask me whatever you would like to ask, and I will give you the answers. Also, it should be said that that is the date where I'm going to drop some pretty huge news on you guys. It may well be the case that some of the questions that are asked are answered by that huge news. And I don't want to say any more, because it'll probably spoil it. But there you go. We've got some huge news ahead. So tune in on the 18th of May to hear what it is.
A recent episode dropped in the regular feed for all regular podcast listeners, in other words, people who are not patrons, and it basically announced that. But it also gave you guys previews of the Suez Crisis episodes that have been released so far. Of course, for patrons, there's not much point in releasing previews when they get the actual episodes. So make sure and check out the Suez Crisis in case you really missed me over the last two weeks. Yes, in case you weren't aware, we did put the Versailles anniversary project on a wee bit of a break. It wasn't necessarily deliberate, it kind of just happened that way with scheduling and work, etc, etc. But it also happened because I realised, looking ahead to the schedule, things are going to get very intense over the next several weeks. In fact, to the extent that there sometimes might be one episode released every single day. I'm afraid that this is just the way we're stuck at the moment. This is the legacy of people trying to solve one of the deadliest wars that ever existed. And they didn't exactly do all that solving with us in mind. So as a result, I have to trawl through all of this detail and bring it to you. And if there was ever a time when podcast scheduling failed, then this is certainly one of them. But anyway, it's very interesting stuff and you should really be looking forward to it because it tells a great story you won't hear anywhere else. Thanks to all of you who are keeping up with the story of the Versailles Anniversary Project, patron and listener alike. And make sure, as a reminder, to send those questions in to me if you are curious. You don't have to just email me. You can put them in on Twitter. You can put them in on Facebook, etc, etc. I'm pretty easy to track down. I'm not exactly hiding. So go and track me down. At WDF Podcast is my Twitter handle in case you weren't aware. And if you're just looking for the Facebook page or group, search When Diplomacy Fails Facebook page or Facebook group in Google. You know what to do, guys. Press a few buttons, type in a few things, and I'll come up. Ask me a question, I'll put it in the episode, and it will all go very nicely. Of course, remember, as a final reminder, check out the 18th of May, because for our 7th birthday, I'll be dropping some pretty huge news. Alrighty, let's get into it now. We've been away from Versailles for a while. In fact, the last time we were here was when we were talking about Japan. So now it's time to look at another member of the Big Five, that being Italy. Thanks for listening, guys, and enjoy. Welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 55 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. After spending the last few episodes examining the Japanese plank of the conference and their dissatisfaction with it, we turn our attention now to the other disaffected member of the Big Five, the Italians. In previous episodes, we've certainly touched on the Italians. Both Vittorio Orlando and Sidney Sassino, his foreign secretary, were far more active in their roles as Premier and Foreign Secretary of Italy, respectively, than the Japanese, so they featured much more prominently in our story. Yet, although they've popped up from time to time, they rarely, if ever, come across particularly well, especially when subject to the pen of Harold Nicholson in his diary. Harold Nicholson, you see, got to see the worst of what the Italians had to offer. The most deliberately difficult and obstructive Italian delegates were the ones that he met. 
they delayed and blocked progress in the committees where he was involved, specifically the Greek committee, and they sulk or withdrew when they didn't get their way. This is part of the story of Italy at the Paris Peace Conference, and it's by no means fully told in the next two episodes, which is the way we're going to kind of break it down. As we're going to see in the next few weeks or so, those that were dealing with the situation in Paris, those that were trying to end the First World War, found that even when Italy left, the Italian ghost stuck around, well into the first week of May when they actually returned, after leaving, as we'll discover, on the 24th of April, 1919. But before we spoil too much of it, we shouldn't think that the Italians were somehow less mature or capable than their counterparts. Every single power, even Harold Nicholson's beloved Britain, was capable of irritating and obfuscating when its leaders had bees in their bonnets. This episode is intended to provide a bit more background to the Italian side of the story, and to colour in some more detail for the Italian figures who represented this side. By undertaking this investigation, I hope to place Italy's demands on dames in context, gauge her anxieties and goals, and ultimately explain why Vittorio Orlando's departure from the Council of Four on the 24th of April actually happened. Without any further ado then, let's get into this as I take you to one of the most dynamic, fascinating and misunderstood stories of the Paris Peace Conference. Signor Orlando was a learned, cultured and eminent lawyer, possessing considerable oratorical gifts. As he had to express himself at our conference in French, his powers were never exhibited at their best. When he spoke in his own language, either in the Italian Parliament or to great crowds outside, I am told he was exceedingly effective. This, coupled with the deep respect he had won by his integrity and genuine patriotism, was the secret of his strength. He had an amiable and attractive personality which made him extremely pleasant as a man to do business with. His interventions at conferences were always sensible and to the point. His views were liberal and democratic. There was no fundamental difference of outlook or principle between him and President Wilson, and I always thought that if the President had taken more trouble to talk things over with him, on a friendly basis, instead of lecturing him from on high, the wretched quarrel that developed over Fiume, and was never settled between the two, could have been accommodated. This was the impression which David Lloyd George has handed down to us of the Italian Premier, and the man who would cause him no shortage of difficulties in the end. Vittorio Orlando, though, was not a petty or irritating little man. He was a respectable, well-meaning statesman who anxiously worked to ensure that the promises made to Italy were honoured. Above all, these promises revolved around the secret Treaty of London from 1915, which had guaranteed Italy so much, and which Italians had fought and died for. The terrible fear was that Woodrow Wilson, barging into the war two years after Italy had been sending its men to die atop great alpine peaks, would absolve the Allies of their previous promises to Italy, and that Britain and France would be only too happy to renege on the promises they had made. Yet American interference in the Italian dream should not lead us to imagine that the Americans had negative views on Vittorio Orlando, the statesman. Not to be outdone by Lloyd George's portrait, Secretary of State Robert Lansing also penned his own impressions of the Italian Premier, which he recorded in his Tome on the Big Four, saying of Orlando that Signor Orlando possessed physical and mental characteristics which had left pleasant memories of intercourse with him. 
short and rotund in person, with thick white hair worn pompadour and a white moustache partially covering his rather full lips, he was not in personal appearance typical of Italy. His shortness of stature, which was about that of Mr Lloyd George, was emphasised by his unusual custom of wearing a close-fitting sack coat, which he generally kept tightly buttoned. With a friendly eye and a smile which dimpled his cheeks, one knew at a glance that he was of a kindly nature and not disposed to quarrel without a sufficient provocation. His clear complexion and unwrinkled face indicated good health and a capacity to enjoy life. Of course, if it had been all about what the Allied leaders thought of Orlando, then Italy would have probably done much better at the Paris Peace Conference. Unfortunately, though, it was less about Orlando, the man, and more about Orlando's demands, which were legion. Above all, Orlando was unceasingly anxious about the Treaty of London from 1915, which had brought Italy into the war. We've talked about this treaty many times in the past, but what did it actually mean? Margaret Macmillan, in her book on the peacemakers, provides a convenient summary for us when she detailed these claims that were inherent in that treaty. Writing, During the war, the European allies, always willing to give away territory that was not theirs, promised the completion of Italy's national dream, as the popular slogan in Italy had it, from Trento to Trieste, across the vulnerable northeastern border that Austria-Hungary had menaced since Italy's birth. But in 1915, when the Treaty of London was drawn up, the British and French threw in more islands on a stretch of Dalmatia along Austro-Hungarian coast, the port of Vlor in Albania, as well as a protectorate over Albania, the Dodecanese Islands along the coast of Asia Minor, and a share in the Ottoman Empire if it disappeared. Italy would have the same rights as Britain and France in the Arabian Peninsula and the Red Sea. To Sinino, the Treaty of London represented a solemn bargain. To Britain and France by 1919, it had become an embarrassment. Alas, the greatest threat to the Treaty of London and Italian dreams did not come from the British or French, but from the Americans. From the very beginning, Wilson had made it very plain that he did not feel bound by the Treaty of London, and that he viewed it as a repugnant treaty from a bygone age. He would have found support among the British and French in this view, not least because it suited both to renege on their commitments, but also because matters had changed in the regions where Italy claimed. Another consideration, which deserves mention, is that sense of bitterness in the Allied camp, that Italy hadn't provided a fair share of grind and sacrifice. This was, it has to be said, an incredibly unfair sentiment, considering the absolute hell which Italian soldiers endured high up in the Alps, and the crushing losses in men and monies which were suffered, but Allied leaders looked only to their experiences as proof of Italian failures. The Italians had neglected to move their navy out of port to patrol the Adriatic. Their combined operations were never timed particularly well to complement the Allies in the West or East, her government regularly and urgently requested material and monetary aid, which was left lying as surplus after the war had ended, unused. An impression started to be formed once the war did end, and Italian soldiers moved quickly to occupy the islands, which she had been promised, that she was only now making an effort. Or, as the British ambassador to Italy wrote to London at the time, the attitude to Italy has been one of supreme content up to now, and one of extreme annoyance. They all say that the signal for an armistice was the signal for Italy to begin to fight. This was unfair, again, but it was not helped by the emergence of a new power in the region where Italy had expected to dominate. 
Yugoslavia. The accumulated territories once owned by Austria-Hungary, that nosed into the Balkans, were eagerly and quickly snapped up by the Serbs. Indeed, we have seen in our mammoth episode, number 46, examining the first two weeks of March, that Montenegro's king sent a representative to protest loudly his country's case, reasoning that Montenegro had been swallowed up with determined speed following the end of the war. This was a problem for Italy as well. With disarming speed and out of absolutely nowhere, it seemed, the Serbians had expanded to gobble up virtually all of the region where Italian interests were believed to reside. Opportunities for expansion, once so plainly evident in the event of a Habsburg collapse, had not been destroyed as quickly and as briefly as they had fluttered before the blushing eyes of expansionist Italian statesmen. Because of their very different attitudes to Yugoslavia, the Allies were destined to fall out with Italy over that question. In the Allied mind, Serbia had harnessed her pre-war spirit and the new Yugoslav state encapsulated the Allied power which had once stood up to Habsburg threats, bravely and in defiance of pretty much all of its neighbours. As an Allied power on the victorious side, did she not deserve now to realise her natural destiny? Concerns and rumours of Serbian aggression and of her uncompromising approach towards other peoples in the region notwithstanding, the British and French seemed largely content to appease Belgrade. Yugoslavia was useful for another reason as well, though. The Treaty of London had, after all, been imagined at a time when the future of Austria-Hungary was not in doubt. Italy's spoils would be taken from a defeated but still intact enemy empire, therefore, and not from a new nation-state technically on the Allied side. Yugoslavia thus threatened the fundamental underlying principle of the Treaty of London, and to the Allies, this meant that the Treaty of London was void. The circumstances had changed too much by 1919 for that 1915 agreement to still apply. Surely the Italians could see that. Every effort must be made to persuade Italy to take up a reasonable attitude on these questions, recorded the British War Cabinet at the end of 1918. Clemenceau, in line with this idea, would meet privately with Orlando countless times over the months that followed in a bid to bring him around to this line of thinking. If the Treaty of London was allowed to stand, then Italy would be claiming South Slav Kingdom territory, not Austro-Hungarian territory, and Rome must have realised that this was a very different matter altogether. Certainly, if Rome did accept this, it would have been absolutely impossible to admit it publicly. Ostensibly in public, the Italian government was fighting for these expansionist aims. If the Allies did not wish to honour them, then that was the fault of those dishonest and dishonourable Allied powers who had lured Italian men into the war to die for them. Seeing things from the British or French or even the Yugoslav side was absolutely impossible, and for any of these reasons, to see things from Italy's perspective was equally never going to happen. Italian sentiment overcame these liberal ideas by insisting that the Croats and Slovenes had fought on the side of the Habsburgs, and therefore they were enemy powers. If the Serbs attempted now to incorporate them into some pan-Slav kingdom, then the lesser Serbs would in time be dominated by the more cultured and intelligent northern Croats and Slovenes. Certainly the Croats and Slovenes would like to have imagined that this was possible in spring 1919. It certainly appeared as though it was Belgrade who held all the cards, not them. Yet the Italians played up on this idea and made plans when they moved into particular regions bordering Yugoslavia to stir up troubles among the ethnic and religious groups. 
one Italian commander even suggested that regular Italian soldiers could play their part by seducing susceptible local women. There was cause for anger and dismay when the Habsburgs handed their navy to the emergent Yugoslavs rather than the Italians. In retribution, an Italian torpedo boat sallied into the port at Pula and sank the pride of the Habsburg fleet, the Viribus Unitus, which went to the bottom of the Adriatic with much of its new Yugoslav captain and crew still on board. The Italians denied any wrongdoing in this act and they refused to compensate Belgrade. This is especially interesting considering the huge fuss we've seen Italians make out of the perceived insult which the Serb government lobbed at Rome in the Slovenian city of Ljubljana, where Italian soldiers and their flags were attacked by Yugoslav thugs. Italian objections to that event effectively dominated the Italian contributions to the Council of Ten during the first two weeks of March. Yet a few months earlier, Italians had been content to make a very real demonstration of their antagonism towards the Serbs by killing them at sea. Italian media played a role in fanning the flames, showing few reservations over promoting this early brand of fake news. Photographs of local peasants in the disputed region on their way to church were, the newspapers claimed, on their way to pay homage to the Italian commander in the region. Photographs of Slavs queuing up for food in the region were, claimed the press, proof that the Slavs were lining up to demand that Italy stay behind in the region and protect them from the Serbs. The Italian people needed little encouragement in any case because they had been led to believe from the beginning that entering the war would grant them the opportunities for expansion and security which the pre-war years had denied. Italians had been nourished by the belief that the horrific losses and terrible trials would in the end be worthwhile because the Allied leaders, in consultation with the Italian government, would grant Italy what she was owed. Demonstrations in Rome, Genoa and Naples in the hundreds of thousands urged the government to realise the expansion in Dalmatia in so-called Dalmatia Days. The American ambassador cabled home the suggestion that the gatherings had been organised by the government, but even if they had, even if all this agitation in favour of seizing Dalmatia was a government-sponsored initiative, neither Vittorio Orlando nor his foreign minister Sonino could manufacture sentiments that ran as deep as these. Sonino, for his part, was publicly respectful but privately dismissive of the American president's reproaches. Is it possible to change the world from a room through the action of some diplomats? Go to the Balkans and try and experiment with the 14 points. Amidst this criticism went a strong PR campaign. During the visits of the leaders to London in December 1918, Vittorio Orlando persuaded those present, albeit with some reluctance, not to recognise Yugoslavia due to the fact that the new kingdom was conducting a veritable persecution as he put it, of Italians. Italian women were being molested for wearing the national colours, Orlando claimed, and the flag had been burned throughout the New Kingdom's lands. Neither the British nor the French appreciated the pressure campaign, with Robert Cecil writing to the British ambassador in Italy that The fact is that the greediness of Italian foreign policy in all directions is leading Italy into serious difficulties. The Yugoslavs have claimed far more than is their just due, But Sinino's stubbornness and the extravagant nature of Italy's claims have created a situation as a result now that it is literally true that Italy has not a friend in Europe except ourselves and she is doing her best to make her isolation complete. 
Considering this sense of isolation, it's hardly surprising that the Italians came to view the American president as a potential ally, at least at first, especially since House encouraged Vittorio Orlando and Sonino to cleave to this view until the scales fell from their eyes in January 1919, when Wilson announced in no uncertain terms would the Treaty of London be allowed to stand. In Wilson's visit to Rome, which we covered all those months ago, and which included visits to the Pope and tours among adoring Italian crowds, the misconception was that America would help Italy, that it would bang the heads of Britain and France together, and that Wilson's 14 points could be interpreted as in Italy's interests. The 14 points, after all, had mentioned the settlement of Italian territory explicitly, and it took some time for the veneer to wear off the shining American president. Orlando remained friendly, painfully polite and discreet throughout the negotiations, and even by spring, the perception went that it was Sonino who did most of the barking, and consequently, of the heavy lifting. But while Sonino sat in the Council of Ten, only Orlando was permitted to sit in the gilded chairs of the Council of Four. From late March, then, could it be expected that Italy would get a fairer shake? Unfortunately for Orlando's government, no. The problem with Italy had not come from nowhere. Evidence had been accumulating over the previous months, largely in the numerous committees and commissions where Italy's statesmen and delegates vouched for a policy which was generally at odds with the consensus. Only rarely did Italy's spokesmen seem willing to go with the flow. Contrary to general interpretations about how difficult the French, and particularly Clemenceau, was during the Paris Peace Conference, it was the Italian contingent that was the most loathed, and it was during the presence of its delegates that the most eyes tended to roll. On the 7th of February, before Woodrow Wilson would have a chance to return home, the Italian government expressed its aims in a memo designed to detail Italian claims and aims for Europe. The document took elements of Wilsonianism in its speech and refrained from mentioning the Treaty of London, though it followed most of its core aims, but it failed to impress or inspire, serving mostly to engender the impression that Italians were grasping and greedy rather than the intended goal of giving off the whiff of restraint and respect for Wilsonianism in international affairs. By far the more contentious and troublesome, not to mention the loudest, of Italian claims centred upon the Tyrol region, that mountainous plot of land which connected northeast Italy and southern Austria together. On the Italian side, the Trentino, a majority of Italian speakers, made solving that portion a no-brainer, but as they got closer to the Austrian border, matters became more complicated. Closer to the Austrian border, the South Tyrol was mostly German-speaking and flummoxed the Allies, who took some time to wrap their heads around what exactly the Italians were asking for and why Rome wanted it. Historically, the province of Tyrol contained a population torn between different ethnic and linguistic pasts, but united in their concerns at a loss in autonomy. The Habsburgs had essentially let the province be, but the Italians believed they needed it to guard against an invasion from that direction, which the Habsburgs had, after all, undertaken following the disastrous Italian defeat at Caporetto in late 1917. The province was ethnically and linguistically split between German and Italian, but that wasn't going to stop Rome from having its way. The entirety of the Tyrol province was handed over to Italy in the end, a gesture, it was said, from the American president to demonstrate that he was not opposed to Italian interests. But Wilson would regret the act in time. 250,000 German-speaking Tyrolese were passed into Rome's jurisdiction. The government endeavoured, 
throughout the 1920s to repress the independent sentiments of the population, destroying its Germanic heritage, and even banning parents from giving their children names which might offend Italian sentiment. Yet, tragic and unfortunate as the case of the Tyrolese was, it was the sole instance where the Italians actually got what they wanted. If he had been willing to sacrifice Germans to the Italian god, the American president was not prepared to sacrifice any Yugoslavs, though. Initially, at least, Wilson had refrained from recognising Yugoslavia, and on the 30th of January had even gone as far as recommending it be divided into three different countries, saying, Yugoslavia might be divided into one, two, or three states. I'm prepared to admit two Yugoslav states to the League of Nations, but if it were found advisable to separate them into three parts, I would prefer to place the more informed and less developed of the new states under the mandatory of the League of Nations. But this statement of intentions was not really applied. The United States did recognise the new Serb superstate after a few weeks of contemplation when some experts in the American delegation arrived to inform the President of what was actually happening in the Balkans and where Yugoslavia fit in. However, while a greater understanding of the situation changed Wilson's mind, what certainly pushed him towards a decision in that direction was the Italian demands, extensive and invasive, over the whole region. We ought to bear in mind that Wilson had the Italian problem in his mind from the very time of his arrival in Paris. Notwithstanding this interest on his part and the keen eagerness of Orlando's delegates to have the frontiers ratified by the conference, though, the Italian question did not become a proper concern of the conference until April. This delay had the effect of prolonging Italian anxieties, but as the weeks ticked by and April loomed, it became plain that the lapse in time had made Wilson increasingly hostile to any notions of Italian expansion in the region. In other words, the delay in discussing Italy had made that country seem like more rather than less of a troublemaker. But we might reasonably ask what caused the delay, or why the Italian leaders allowed it and didn't work to get their case heard earlier. One explanation points to the dominant position of Germany in the Allied discussions. We have seen before how much time discussing Germany consumed. During the first two weeks of March, the question of Germany's armed forces was returned to again and again, as were issues like feeding Germany, punishing Germany in other ways, reparations for Germany, the current German government as well. Germany was the most important enemy power, and the settlement of the German question took first place for all of the principal allies, except, of course, for the Italians, who were more concerned with the collapsed but still lingering power of Austria to their north. Italy's focus on Austria-Hungary was in itself a bit of a problem. In the minds of the other allied powers, Austria-Hungary no longer existed, and thus was plainly the less important case. But then, these allies hadn't fought tooth and nail against Vienna since 1915, the Italians had. It wasn't just the absence of the Habsburg monarchy that affected Allied perspectives though, it was also the complications which that vanished empire presented. In Austria-Hungary's place were the rump states of Austria and Hungary, for sure, but there were also various bits of territory whose status ranged all the way from that of an enemy to that of an ally. The most blatant example was in Czechoslovakia, which had existed almost wholly within the limits of the defunct empire, and which was unquestionably recognised as an ally by spring 1919. In the southwest and along the Adriatic, of course, the situation became stickier still. There was Serbia, that power which had defied Habsburg bullying in 1914, and paid the ultimate price. 
Belgrade was unquestionably an ally, but territories larger than Serbia itself had suddenly joined with her. These territories hadn't simply been claimed as part of a treaty or due to some notion of nationalism, as other delegates had done. Instead, vast swathes of Balkan country had been occupied and placed under the new flag of the Kingdom of the Serbs, Croats and Slovenes as a fait accompli to the Allies, which seemed impossible to undo. Interestingly, within the new South Slav Kingdom, the larger part in territory and population had been enemy, some of it loyal to the Habsburgs almost to the very last. The matter clearly called for careful consideration. How much reality was there in the new state and was it likely to hold together? These considerations, which the Italians naturally did not fail to emphasise, lay behind the refusal of the Allies to recognise the Serb-Croat-Slovene state until a later time. Yet, the longer the Italian claims were delayed, the more established and secure that new Slav kingdom would become. By the time the Allies had turned their attention to Italy's Balkan interests, they had all recognised the existence of Yugoslavia, and the French had even come to view the new power as a potential foil to any Italian threat which might emerge in the future. And what did Italy want? Well, not merely the fulfilment of the Treaty of London, but other additional nuggets besides. It is important that we state these nuggets in all their stark glory. Italian statesmen wanted to push their borders eastwards into Slovenia and Croatia, to seize the major Austro-Hungarian ports of Fiume and Trieste, to take several key islands in the Adriatic, and to effectively choke Yugoslavia from that Adriatic Sea. In possession of these chunks of Dalmatian land, Italian soldiers would be able to speed out of their interconnected railway hubs to virtually any point in the Balkans, while the Yugoslav coastline would be dramatically reduced. Rather than proclaiming their actual desire to smother the Yugoslav baby in its cradle, Italian statesmen instead talked of honouring Italian history and doing justice to her patriots living in Dalmatia. Dalmatia and Illyria had been Roman provinces. Venice had held them firmly in her grasp as well. More recently, Italians in these regions had demonstrated their tenacity and bravery by clinging to their language, even at the threat of Habsburg oppression. Italian-sponsored tales of Slav atrocities and Italian bravery at the same time did the rounds in Paris, but so did other versions of these stories, which noted how Italy closed Slavic newspapers, deported several unruly nationalists, and cut food off from the most troublesome spots. This brought Italy into conflict with Paris's resident food deliverer, Herbert Hoover, as early as mid-February, and she would come under his attack again in March, as we have seen. Perceptions that Italy was attempting to starve out the Yugoslavs in the regions they occupied poisoned relations between the Americans and Italian staffs even further. Italian experts argued that the census figures of 1910, which was the only report either the Yugoslav or Italian authorities were willing to consider, painted the situation clearly. Even while these census figures were anything but clear and demonstrated that the regions were contentious hives of numerous ethnicities and national ideas. In fact, the historian George Kiss believed the census issue so problematic that he wrote how, Among the difficulties encountered by any student of Italian boundaries, conflicting census data is perhaps the most serious. Precisely because their position was insecure and their aims in danger of being unfulfilled, Italian representatives on the relevant committees had the habit of being deliberately obstructive and stubborn often to the point of everyone else's immense frustration. 
We need only observe Harold Nicholson's pained experiences and his loud denunciations of the Italians in his diary to get an impression of this, but it can also be observed in the actual minutes of the Council of Ten and Council of Four. Italian delegates at the top level actually refrained from speaking unless the matter under discussion was of direct interest to them. They were like the European equivalent of Japan in this regard, but at least Japan's claims were distant and somewhat mysterious. Italy's were loudly declared and too near and contentious to simply hand over. Nor was Italy particularly adept at scheming among the minor nations. In fact, her delegates believed it was above Italy to engage in this behaviour, and what scheming she did engage in only served to alienate Italy still further. The Greeks, for instance, a potential ally, but in the end a foe, were pushed aside one too many times when Rome refused to let go of the mostly Greek Dodecanese islands. Hungary was angered when Romania's claims to Transylvania were given Italian approval, but then the Italians sold arms to Bailakun's Bolshevik regime without much apprehension, which made both powers unhappy with Italy in the end. Orlando was also adamant that matters pertaining to Italy's security could not be left in the hands of the committees which were everywhere in Paris. But this mostly just meant that those committees which did have the misfortune of discussing some Italian interest saw its progress delayed and its other delegates pushed into a state of miserable frustration, as Harold Nicholson experienced. The city of Fiume contained an Italian middle class, some prosperous Hungarian merchants and a Slovenian working class, and when the nearby suburbs were included in the estimation, Italians were by no means in the majority. Yet the Italians clung to Fiume with their fingernails, to the extent that the question became elevated to one of national honour and was talked of passionately and frequently in the Italian cities. Orlando would certainly have felt this pressure from home. He was a skilled parliamentarian, but not particularly effective in Paris, where he had little in the way of leverage and his French wasn't all that super. In Italy, the extreme sides of the right and left were openly confronting one another in the major cities and these passions were fanned by rumours and accusations which revolved around the idea of a mutilated victory, a phrase first used by Gabriel D'Annunzio, a charismatic rabble-rouser who effectively took over Fiume as its duce from September 1919, before the more infamous Mussolini would make use of that same title. Fiume, in short, was the Italian bee which refused to escape from the Allied bonnet. From the beginning of April 1919, when Orlando was finally asked to express his position on the Adriatic in writing for the record, the problems which had existed in the background of the conference were pulled to the forefront. On the 3rd of April, the same day Lloyd George invited Orlando to inform those present in the Council of Four about where Italy stood, the Italian leader made his peace, refused to make Fiume a free city under the League of Nations, and refused again to hear the Yugoslav views on the matter on the basis that he was not in the council to hear the cases of enemy nations. Private meetings failed to restore the impasse, and by the 13th of April, rumours had been swirling that Orlando planned to walk out of the conference altogether. By then, the Allies had put Italy to one side once more, and were imagining when it would be apt to invite the Germans to Paris. Orlando interrupted the exercise by insisting that the time had come to properly consider Italy. Italian public opinion is very excitable, Orlando said. I'm doing what I can to calm it, but the consequences of a disappointment of this kind would be very grave. Neither Lloyd George nor George Clemenceau wanted to delay talk of inviting the Germans, because they basically wanted to get on with hammering out the final treaty, and they couldn't do that unless the Germans were there. 
but Wilson appealed to them to delay it even for a few days. In the meantime, Wilson committed to discussing the Italian claims. The British and French premiers were appalled, and they were frustrated that Italy had once again got in their way. But in Orlando's defence, Italian public opinion really had reached something of a fever pitch, and it really was about time that the Allies paid proper attention to solving Italy's position, difficult though that task was. Orlando would now have Wilson face to face, when he could perhaps make the President see things from Italy's point of view. Yet it became clearer than ever during these private meetings that Italy and America were standing on intractable, incompatible platforms, which neither felt able to step down from. Wilson effectively insisted to Orlando that since Germany was being dealt with on the basis of the 14 points, so too would Austria be dealt with in the spirit of that document as well. Orlando reported to his delegation that there seemed no room for discussion, and during a meeting on the 14th of April, Orlando described as very stormy, the impasse was only ingrained further. The 19th of April began six strenuous days of debate and discussion, as the British and French worked to provide a bridge between Italian and American sides. This was Easter Saturday, and Orlando was quick to make use of symbolism. I am indeed a new Christ, and must suffer my passion for the salvation of my country, Orlando said. I understand, he added, the tragic solemnity of this moment. Italy will suffer from this decision. For her, it is only a question of choosing between two deaths. Orlando, not for the last time, threatened to leave Paris, and Lloyd George worked to persuade him not to go, or worse, not to so inflame the President that Wilson took the United States out of the conference. I do not know how Europe will get back on its feet if the United States does not stay with us and help us to oil the machinery, the Prime Minister said. Wilson emphasised how disgusted people throughout the world were with the old method of doing things. He perhaps was unaware that this old method was powering Italian politics and debate at that very moment. Sonino unleashed a torrent of his own, proclaiming that After a war requiring such enormous sacrifices in which Italy has had 500,000 killed and 900,000 disabled, it is not conceivable that we should return to a worse situation than before the war. Certain islands on the Dalmatian coast were conceded to us even by Austria-Hungary to ensure our neutrality. You will not even grant us these. That could not be explained to the Italian people. For my part, I see my death in all this. I mean my moral death. I have ruined my country whilst I believed I was doing my duty. In Sonino's defence, Italy had been promised several core items in 1915, and without these promises, it is highly unlikely that Rome would have intervened when she did. While it is likely that Italy would not have remained neutral throughout the conflict, it was certainly impossible to deny that Italy entered the war in that year precisely because of the promises within the Treaty of London, which seemed so worth fighting for to the Italian government regardless of their moral quality. Italian frustrations were not helped by the strong feeling partially justified, that it seemed like one rule for the Italians and one rule for everyone else, as the historian René Albrecht Carré noted in his 1938 book on Italy at the Peace Conference, when he wrote, If, however, exceptions were made in favour of Great Britain, freedom of the seas and colonies, and of France, the Tsar and colonies, and in a host of other cases, example, Poland, Czechoslovakia, etc., it might appear somewhat strange that strict justice should be adhered to when it came to Italy, and one may understand the feeling which became prevalent in Italy of being cheated by comparison with the other powers. 
Dependent as she was upon the Allies and powerless to block the German settlement, Italy could indeed fall back on the Treaty of London, as she eventually did, but she hesitated before putting herself in so invidious a position before Wilson. By late April 1919, though, this hesitation had mostly vanished. It was do or die for Orlando's delegation. Sonino angrily spat out the accusation of inconsistency and hypocrisy while Wilson was present in the room. After ignoring and violating his own 14 points, President Wilson wants to restore their virginity by applying them vigorously where they refer to Italy. The charge stung Wilson precisely because it was not without truth. The 14 points had proved ludicrously inadequate for solving contentious border problems in Eastern Europe, where Czechs and Poles had fought over Techen, or in Ireland, where it was not applied at all, or even in the Tyrol, where the act of placing hundreds of thousands of ethnic Germans under Italian rule was considered worth it. A few weeks later, Wilson would hand Chinese land over to the Japanese, as the enraged but powerless Chinese delegates looked on. The Italian delegates, in short, had come to discover that the 14 points only applied where it suited Wilson to apply them. Italy was destined to be the first casualty of the President's inconsistency in this regard, but in the long line of disgruntled delegates, it was perhaps inevitable that Italy was destined to be by no means its final casualty. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 